The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. In this month of July, on this um, small but beautiful book of Ruth, and we've entitled the series uh, A Love Story. And we've covered the first two chapters, and now today we're on chapter three. Um, I want to begin by sharing a little bit about my own story with my wife, Betty. Uh, if we could go to the next slide there. Um, this is us back in college days. Um, most of you may not know this, but I, I actually never formally proposed to my wife, Betty. Um, we, we dated for 10 years before we got married, uh, since high school days. Um, and so one day we were just taking a walk in the evening, and I said very unromantically and matter-of-factly to her, um, we're getting married, right? <laughs> and I think she said something like, yeah. <laughs> or maybe she said, are we? And I said, yeah, I don't know. But... That was it. Um, no ring, no getting on one knee, no bed of 100 roses waiting for her in a strategic location in a park, no friend waiting behind the bushes with a camera to capture the moment on film. Um, it's just a real miracle that she ever married me, isn't it? <laughs> Such an unromantic guy. Um, as unusual as my non-proposal was to my wife, Betty, this third chapter of Ruth um, contains just as unusual an engagement night. And uh, before we get there, though, I think we have to do a little review to figure out what's going on here. As I've been saying in the first couple of messages, the story of Ruth begins when a Jewish family of four looks for relief from a famine by leaving their hometown of Bethlehem in Israel and relocating to a nearby nation known as Moab. Um, there the father, Elimelech, dies, followed, unfortunately, by the death of their two sons. And so the mother, Naomi, is left alone. She alone is the survivor of this family. And she's there with her two daughters-in-law, who are both Moabite women. And Naomi has come to the conclusion that God is against her, that there's like a cloud following her. God has, in essence, become her enemy. And so before she heads back home to her hometown of Bethlehem, she urges her foreign daughters-in-law, go back to your own home villages. Don't follow me. I'm under a curse. My life is broken. It's it's a disaster. So go to your own family, find new husbands for yourselves, and live a good life. And although at first she resists, one of the daughters, Orpah, finally relents and turns around and heads back home to her family. But Ruth will not be deterred. She insists on making this journey with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem. In verse 16 of chapter 1, it read, 
Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And as I said in that first message in the series, this was far more than just the tenacious family loyalty that was on display in the heart of Ruth. It was actually an expression of faith that Ruth was committing herself to the God of Israel, saying the God that you have introduced me to, this, this what was to me once a foreign God, has become my God. And so I will go where you go, and your God will be my God. It's interesting. Uh, the author of this book of Ruth is a very skilled storyteller. And one of the things that this person does is at the close of each scene, and there's four of them, um, marked out by these chapter markings, um, a little nugget is given to us that sets the stage for what's going to happen in the following chapter. And so at the end of chapter 1, Naomi is complaining that God has returned me to Bethlehem empty-handed. But in the very next sentence, we're told two really critical facts. We're told that, in fact, Naomi has not returned empty-handed, but was accompanied by Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And the second detail we're given was that it was the beginning of the barley harvest. And although Naomi didn't know it at the time, these two seemingly insignificant facts would radically change her destiny, her life. Well, chapter 2 opens with Ruth venturing out to find a field where she can glean. In essence, what that means is to pick up the scraps that are left over by the harvesters in order to feed herself and her mother-in-law. It's basically a matter of survival, putting food on the table. And so by God's providence, she ends up in the field of this man named Boaz, who, although she doesn't know it at the time, is one of Naomi's relatives. And he puts on this incredible over-the-top display of kindness toward her. He orders his men not to lay a hand on her. Don't touch this woman. And then he invites her to drink freely from the water that his men have drawn for his own workers. And then when lunchtime rolls around, he invites Ruth to his own table and feeds her until she's stuffed. And not only that, but he puts together a little doggy bag for her to take home to her mother-in-law. He orders his men, once they start harvesting again, not to bother her. If Ruth happens to not just pick up the scraps on the floor, but end up picking some of the stalks of barley in the sheaves, the bundles that they've gathered for their own harvest. Since if she happens to pick from that stuff, leave her alone. And then he says, on top of that, I want you to intentionally drop some stalks of barley like it was an accident so that she can pick up even more barley on top of that. All of this stacks up so that by the end of the day, Ruth goes home with a 35-pound bag of barley. It's just an outrageous amount of grain. And so when Ruth comes home with this heaping bag of barley, Naomi can't believe her eyes. She says, where in the world did you glean today? Whose field did you work in? And so in chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, we found this conversation. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. 
That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not, uh, and then, and then this, before moving on to the story, I want to focus a little bit on this title that Naomi gives to Boaz, kinsman, redeemer, because it's critical to understanding what happens in the second half of the story. To understand the idea of a kinsman redeemer in Israel, you have to know a bit about land ownership, the way that God spelled it out for his people. The, the laws that govern land ownership were so radical in Israel, it was unparalleled in the ancient world. No other nation acted this way. In Psalm 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This was the most foundational truth about land ownership, was the message that God owns every land. It all belongs to him, and he gives it on loan to his people. And so through the promise of Abraham, God creates a people for himself, and attached to that promise is the promise that one day his people will be given a land, an inheritance. And that promise will be fulfilled hundreds of years later in the days of Joshua that were not long before the story of Ruth takes place when the Israelites were given possession of this land of Canaan. And once they conquer that land, Joshua gathers the tribes together and every single family in Israel is given a parcel of land as their inheritance from God. It was a clear message that every family has a part in God's promise. Not a single person was to be excluded. And so every, excuse me, every citizen in Israel is a landowner overnight. They were all given a, a personal farm. But here is the reality is that God was a realist. And he knew that in a broken and sinful world, not everyone is going to be able to hold on to this land. Whether it was circumstances that were outside of your control, like war or famine, or whether it was your own fault, a dumb business deal that went bad that you never should have gotten involved with. I don't know, whatever reason it was. Maybe it was your own foolishness. Whatever the issue was, a family in Israel could find themselves in a situation where their flat broke. And the only option is to sell the family farm in order to survive. And so God made a provision in his law to help these destitute families if they were found in a situation where they had to sell their land to get it back one day. The actual law is found in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 to 28. And it says, The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property... His nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. 
If however a man is no one to redeem it for him, but he himself prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, he is to determine the value for the year since he sold it and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then go back to his own property. But if he does not acquire the means to repay him, what he sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of jubilee. It will be returned in the jubilee, and he can then go back to his property. It's really interesting. God basically lays out three scenarios of getting your land back. He says, first of all, if you come upon better times and you make your money back and you gather enough wealth to purchase your land back, then whoever sold you that land is obligated to sell it back to you, whether he wants to or not. Because the truth is, it's your land. He must sell it back to you at a fair market value with appreciation, interestingly. Okay, so God is fair and just about that financial transaction. But he says he has to give it back to you because that is your inheritance that God has given you. But then he says, if you still remain poor and have no money, though, your nearest relative, your kinsman redeemer, is obligated to act on your behalf and take the loss upon himself and front the money to let you buy back your farm. And then the final situation is if you have no money and you have no kinsman redeemer, then you can wait till the year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years. And the command there is that when that 50th year comes, every debt is canceled. Every slave is set free. Everyone gets their land back without cost. It's like everybody gets a fresh start. It would have been absolutely breathtaking to live in those days, wouldn't it? And experience a jubilee year. I mean, it's just unfathomable the amount of celebration that must have gone on on that year. It's interesting, when you read the laws related to this kinsman redeemer, that nearest relative not only has the obligation to help you get your land back, but to also help you carry on your family name through your descendants. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 through 6, we find this additional command. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So whether it's about your children and your grandchildren, your descendants, or whether it's about your land, this was the fundamental message of God. Is by these laws that I enact in the land, it's my way of showing you grace so that no family will be ever left out of this promise. But whatever hardships you face, by his grace, he has created a means to take care of his people. Well, for Naomi, the situation was clear. Her family's name was about to be blotted out forever from the histories of Israel. It doesn't say so explicitly, but the implication is pretty clear. In that famine, before they moved out of Bethlehem and relocated to Moab, they must have sold the family farm in order to get some money. And so now Naomi is left almost with nothing. She has no land. The family farm has been sold. 
She has no grandchildren, no descendants to get it back. Everything seemed utterly hopeless until she realizes she has a kinsman redeemer in this relative named Boaz. And after that first day of harvest in chapter 2, it must have felt pretty hopeful to Naomi. Because why else would Boaz go so out of his way to be that kind to Ruth unless he has some interest in her? There's this tension there that really, you know, this is one of the skills of the author of Ruth is that he presents so many details where it could be read in two ways. And you're like, well, I don't know. What, does, does Boaz have feelings for Ruth? It's a little hard to believe that any guy would treat a girl that nicely if he's at least not somewhat interested in her romantically, right? Um, and yet at the very end of chapter 2, in verse 23, we find this observation. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. In other words, the whole barley and now even the wheat harvest season is just about done. That's as long as seven weeks has gone by now since chapter 2. And as the harvest weeks progressed, the message is this, that whatever spark might have been there at the beginning of the harvest, it seems to have fizzled out. Nothing happened. No romance bloomed between Boaz and Ruth. And I think Naomi is genuinely confused. What went wrong? Why didn't Boaz make a move on Ruth? Um, Ruth and Boaz are basically acting like panda bears. Do you know panda bears? They're about to go extinct because they have so little interest in sex, okay? They would rather eat bamboo than have sex, okay? And so... Naomi decides to provide a spark of her own for these two reluctant pandas. And so she hatches a plan of her own. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 3. In verses 1 to 4, it says, One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you, where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with those with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, many have tried to interpret Naomi's instructions in the best possible light in order to justify what she did that day. But here's the truth. There's just no way around it. In Naomi's impatience to make romance happen between the two, these two people, she acted pretty rashly. And by doing so, she put her daughter-in-law in a really compromising position. She, she basically tells Ruth to make herself look as attractive as possible. You know, gussy yourself up. 
Take a good long bath. Put perfume on. Get your best outfit on. And then not only that, she sends her to the threshing floor at night. He says, once you get there, don't approach Boaz right away. Sit on the side. Stand at the side. And wait until he's at least a little liquored up, okay, through the celebration. And when he's had a few drinks in his belt, under his belt, and he finally goes down to sleep, that's when you strategically approach him. And then she says, we'll try to get through this a little bit, but she says in this weird command, uncover his feet and then lay down next to him. And when he finally gets startled, just let him take over from there, and he'll tell you what to do next. Um, there are a lot of sexual overtones, and I was thinking of all the weeks for the youth group to be with us, why this week? So the whole time I'm preparing the sermon, I'm toning it down a little, and I can't quite give you the full R-rated version. I'm going to give you the kind of PG-13 version of what's happening, because I realize there's some youth here, Okay. But it's, it's pretty raunchy stuff, okay? Um, first, threshing floors in and of themselves had bad reputations. Bad stuff happened on threshing floors, especially at nighttime. Um, they were common places of prostitution. And it was often associated with fertility rites and harvest, right? This whole idea of honoring the gods through sex so that your harvest would be good, you know? Hosea chapter 9.1 captures this dynamic when it says, Do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. You hear that? That's where the prostitutes conducted their business. That word uncover used in verse 4 is one that is, in other places in the Old Testament, often actually used to describe exposing one's private parts, okay? Um, On top of that, this word feet is often a euphemism, a more polite way in the Bible of describing someone's genitalia, someone's private parts, okay? Lastly, in the Bible, to lie down with someone often implies sex, okay? Now, the question, this is the question, what in the world is going on here, okay? Now, we don't know for sure, but I believe the author intentionally uses these words with sexual overtones to show how much temptation and risk was in the air that night on Boaz's threshing floor. As the title of my message suggests, it was a night filled with all kinds of possibilities, and not all of them were honorable ones. Now, I'm going to argue this. Despite all of the sexual tension in this story at chapter 3, I don't actually believe anything immoral happened that night. And I want to sort of make that case. As the story goes on in verses 5 through 8, it says this. Ruth says to Naomi, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. 
When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. I think very likely what happened is this, that Ruth ended up exposing Boaz's legs, okay, to the cold night air with the intention of using that as a way of waking him from his sleep. And I think that's actually exactly what happened. Boaz was awakened in middle of the night. He feels this cold draft on his legs, and he gets startled, and as he shuffles to probably pull the blanket back over his legs, he kicks something, you know, and there's a human body there, and he realizes a woman is sleeping next to him. Imagine his shock when he discovers this, and he says, who are you? Who is this person laying next to me? I am your servant, Ruth. She said. Now, here's the interesting part in the story in chapter 3. Naomi had given explicit instructions to Ruth that at this point, let Boaz take charge and listen to what he tells you to do. But this is where Ruth sort of goes off script and takes her own initiative because she continues with these words to Boaz. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. What it sounds like she is saying is, cover me with your blanket too. And this is just feeding on this whole sexual tension that is there, almost as if to say, lie with me, right? But I don't think that's what's going on here. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz offered a prayer to Ruth where he said, May you, richly, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, that word corner is literally the word wing. And so in essence, what she says to Boaz is, spread the wing of your garment over me since you are a kinsman. Redeemer. And the connection is undeniable. What Ruth is basically saying to Boaz is this At the beginning of the harvest, you prayed a prayer for me that God's wing would shelter me and cover me and protect me. Boaz, what I am asking of you tonight is to cover me with your wing because as my kinsman redeemer, You can be the answer to your own prayer for me. In essence, what Ruth is saying to Boaz that night is not sleep with me, but something even more audacious. Marry me. Marry me. You marry me and redeem me. Be my kinsman, redeemer. Story goes on in verses 10 through 18. For the rest of the chapter, it reads, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. 
You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter. Until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. There are just two brief applications to this chapter 3 that I want to make for us as I sort of wrap up this message. The first one is this. In pursuing God's will, don't get ahead of God, but honor him in all the choices that you make. I think that's where Naomi went wrong. The positive side of what happens is that Naomi goes from a sense of utter hopelessness to actually hoping again when she sees God at work in her life. But the problem is that in her enthusiasm, she wanted so desperately to secure this happiness for her daughter Ruth and herself that she ends up sending her daughter to the threshing floor of Boaz and putting her in this compromising position. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Naomi has a sense of what God's providential purpose might be, but hunches about what God is doing should not be turned into schemes by which we engineer circumstances in order to bring those purposes to pass in an accelerated way. Naomi recognizes what God might be doing But she does not submit herself to the principle that God's purposes are to be fulfilled in God's ways and at God's times. At God's time. Hear what Ferguson is saying. I think that same temptation exists in our life as well. Sometimes we want an outcome so badly that we can often get ahead of God trying to take matters into our own hands and force the issue in order to, quote, help God along to accomplish what we think he ought to accomplish in our lives. You know, what I find interesting is in contrast to Naomi, Boaz and Ruth act very differently in this story. Um, By Boaz's enthusiastic response, I think it's pretty clear at this point in the story that he actually had some feelings for Ruth. He's saying, yeah, amen, I will marry you. I will do this thing. But what I find interesting is that even in that intense desire he had for her, and even in Ruth's desperation, it would have been so easy for them to sleep with each other that night and force God's hand. 
But instead, he doesn't lay a hand on her, but tells her, just go to sleep and then go back to your mother-in-law in the morning. And then on top of that, he does the unthinkable. He says, I want more than anything to marry you, Ruth. But here's the truth. There's a relative that is closer to Naomi than I am. And I need to ask him if he wants to marry you first. And so that's what I have to do. In other words, Boaz was this man of integrity that said, oh, we're like right there at the one-yard line. And if we sleep together, we seal the deal, right? And if I get you pregnant, what other relative is going to want to marry you then, right? But he demonstrates this unbelievable patience and trust in God that says, you want this thing, I want this thing, all the stars are aligned, But in integrity, we have to follow God's law. And in God's law, it says the nearest relative has first right of refusal to marry you. So I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to go to him in the morning and ask if he wants to marry you. It kills you, right? It's like, no. Why do you have to be like that? We want the romance. But what Boaz wants is to act in a way that is honorable to him. And I think that's something that every one of us has to wrestle with when we think about this idea of living a life that is honoring to God's will for us. Is that what that's going to mean is that in moments, by choosing to obey what honors God, it may, at least from a human perspective, seem to be the worst choice we could possibly make in a situation. It's going to seem counterintuitive, illogical, against what seems to be the best interest of everyone involved. But this is where faith has to be ignited and say, you know, if we just take matters into our own hand, we can make this work. We can make it happen. But instead, it's this message, we will act ethically and honoring to God. And if God blesses it, it will happen. I wonder if you've faced situations like that in your own life where you felt that maybe God needs a little helping hand. And maybe that meant taking some shortcuts or cutting some corners. But what God invites us to see through the story of Ruth is what he honors is a heart of patient faithfulness that says, I am not going to engineer this outcome and make it happen by my own cleverness. I will wait on God and see how he acts on my behalf. The second thing, and I'll close with this and we'll wrap up, is this. That God can accomplish his will even when the journey is filled with brokenness and failure. And let's be honest here. Sometimes that brokenness and failure is our own stupidity. It's because of our own sin, our own bad choices. And other times, even when you're trying to do everything honorably, because we live in a broken world, we get entangled in the sins and failures of others, don't we? I mean, I think that's what happened to Boaz that day. He didn't do anything to deserve waking up in the middle of the night and finding a woman all gussied up laying next to him. But because of the choices that Naomi and Ruth made, he was faced with that sexual temptation. In the middle of the night. 
As we've seen in the story of Ruth, the whole story basically unfolds because of choices that people are making. And the truth is, often these choices were not very good choices. A legitimate question, as I mentioned in an earlier message, that can be raised is what in the world Elimelech and Naomi were even doing relocating to Moab, a country that was under the curse of God? On top of that, their sons took wives among the Moabite women, which was expressly forbidden by God to do. He said, don't marry these Moabites. On top of that, out of obedience to her mother-in-law, Ruth follows her unwise counsel and shows up on Boaz's threshing floor that night in a compromising position. And yet, here is the truth of the way the story of Ruth unfolds. If Elimelech and Naomi never resettled in Moab, then the truth is Ruth would have never been in the picture. And if Ruth didn't go to the threshing floor that night. There's a real question, would they have gotten married at the end of this story? It sure seems like Naomi's advice worked, doesn't it? That they ended up actually hooking up and getting married as a result of that. And there is a really dangerous logic that can take place in our head as we think about this. Basically, we can think wrongly like this. I think what the story of Ruth is telling us is you can pretty much do whatever you want because in the end, God fixes everything, (laughs) you know? So make as many bad choices as you want. Do whatever you want to your heart's content, and God is sovereign. (laughs) His grace is there. I don't think that's the lesson of Ruth. I think the real lesson is this. Even when we sin and when we fail, God's grace is greater. What I want to speak particularly to this is this, because in my years of pastoral counseling, what I've come to find is that there are a lot of Christians in the church that are walking with this haunting feeling that I can never experience God's best for my life because I've made some pretty crucial bad decisions in my life. And so, basically, I'm resigned to living God's second best for me. These are pretty dark places to go in your mind, isn't it? For some of you, it may get as dark as, I think I married the wrong person out of my own selfish desire. I chose the wrong career path. I did some horrible sins that I can never take back. And when you live under the shadow of something like that, it's hard to believe that God could possibly have great plans for your life, isn't it? And I think the truth is that's how Naomi felt. That's why she felt that God was against her. I have wrecked this whole thing. Whatever my life could have been, whatever destiny could have been mine, it's just not there for me anymore. I've messed up too badly. I've screwed it all up. I think if there is a lesson here in the third chapter of Ruth, it is this. 
all of us go through life. Un- we, we are not going to make it through unscathed. We're all going to make some pretty poor decisions. And you're going to have to live with the consequences of those poor decisions. Maybe for the rest of your life in truth. And even if you do your best to live honorably, here's another truth. Is that garbage is going to fly in your face because of what other people do. You're going to be victimized. You may have done everything right and it can still go wrong because of what others do against you. But here is what I find in this third chapter of Ruth is this message that even when that journey seems utterly broken and hopeless, God can redeem even that. God said, do not marry a Moabite woman. And yet Naomi's sons flat out disobeyed and did. And yet, and yet, this Moabite woman named Ruth will play an absolutely critical role in redemptive history. That's the amazing grace of God. Is that even in our failure and sin, God redeems, God saves. Let's pray. As we uh, close out our morning worship, just want to give you this opportunity to do a little reflection in your own life. Um, The two real takeaways that I'm presenting to you tonight are pretty straightforward. One is, in wanting to live the will of God out in our lives, we have to be very careful to not get ahead of God, but to have this patient faithfulness to follow his commands and live in God-honoring ways that at times is going to feel like the most illogical thing to do in your life. I think the truth is we often do try to engineer outcomes and try to rig the system, don't we? We try to help God along. And listen, I'm not trying to paint the picture of the Christian life as an utterly passive life in which you do nothing but sit on your hands and wait on God. That's not the picture I'm trying to portray here. There is a place to take action. There is a place to have courage, to be proactive in making decisions. We need that. But I'm talking about a bit of a different attitude here in which you cut corners and you behave unethically and you get ahead of God. In fact, the truth is in your choices you make, maybe God even doesn't matter that much because you want an outcome so badly. That's, that's the spirit I'm trying to address here. And maybe that's sort of where you find yourself at a season of your life where you feel a little bit stuck. You know, you feel like Naomi. Things seem so promising at first, at the beginning of the harvest, but now seven weeks have gone by. And there's been no movement, and you don't understand what's going on. And just like Naomi, you're tempted to send Ruth to that threshing floor and put her in that compromising position. And I think what God is maybe challenging you to do is saying, you know, I know you're feeling really impatient about this thing. And I know you're thinking, you know, when is this going to happen? When is God going to act? Maybe what God is saying is you need patience. You need trust. And don't take those shortcuts. The ends don't justify the means. 
be faithful and live in God-honoring ways. And in my own way, I will act on your behalf. And then, like I said at the end of this message, the, the other area of response that I want all of us to reflect on is the sense of failure, the sense of hopelessness, the sense that I spoiled it. It's my fault. I did it. I messed up so badly that, I don't know, I feel like I'm just always going to be a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. Or maybe you are upset because you said, no, that's not my story. I tried my best to do what's right. And yet this garbage is still in my life because of what others are doing to me. And I think even in a situation like that, what we find here in this message of Ruth, especially here in chapter 3, is in that brokenness, in that sin, in that failure, whether it's yours or whether it's other people, whether you find yourself in this very weird, morally ambiguous situation like Boaz and Ruth found themselves that night on the threshing floor. God says, you know, I can redeem that brokenness. I can redeem it for my glory because of what my son Jesus Christ did for you. And so can I just invite you to take this moment of reflection and prayer before God and say, God, give me that faith. Give me that trust in your sovereign care over my life so that I believe that even in the situation that I'm facing, you're still there. You're still present. You're at work. Would you just pray that before the Lord? Let's pray.